communities are bound together by different things, uh, generally by something that is common to those that are there. Uh, a geographic location would be a uh, distinguishing factor. And so since we live in this area called Winsboro, we form the Winsboro community. Uh, it might be uh, a place of work. So we have a sense of community with those that we work with. Uh, and that kind of binds us together in a way and makes us a, a community. Uh, when we were in Brazil... Uh, as missionaries, uh, there were other Americans that lived in that city, and so we, uh, we had a small American community that would get together sometimes and spend some time, uh, U.S., like July the 4th, uh, or something like that. We'd get together and have a sense of community in that way. We depend on communities because the community we're in gives us some things that are important to us. They uh, supply support or maybe encouragement. Uh, if we have a problem, then oftentimes we'll go to those persons that are in our community for some assistance, some help. Uh, uh, if there's an emergency, we look to those in our community for help. Uh, communities give us a sense of family or we belong. We, we have a sense of identity there. But every community also has some boundaries, uh, uh, some definitions that decide who are in the community and who are not. Uh, sometimes it's geographical. If you don't live in or around Winsboro, then you can't be part of the Winsboro community, or at least not very effectively. Uh, uh, we, we are bound by those uniquenesses of the area. Uh, if, if you uh, are part of a work community, well, you've got to work in that place to have that sense of, uh, of community. Uh, I belong to a loose-knit community called Lipscomb Alumni. And so this last week, uh, before the Final Four, I was all into the NIT, watching Lipscomb, unfortunately, get beat, slaughtered in the uh, in the championship game. But they were there, uh, and uh, that was that was neat. Now, when I was at Lipscomb, they were in the NAIA, National Association of Intercollegiate, well, anyhow, whatever that is, uh, and they won championship two or three times. Uh, and then they moved to the NCAA, and they haven't done very well since then. But. Uh, the church is a community. We're bound together by the common faith we have and a relationship that God has given us based on that faith. Uh, now, we're also bound in, in the church together with a lifestyle. Uh, we're bound with a sense of purpose. Uh, we, when we come to the kingdom of God, we also have a common allegiance. We recognize the lordship of Jesus that binds us together. Uh, and to one another, we offer fellowship and friendship and family. Together we have a sense of belonging. We belong together. 
And that gives us responsibilities and privileges of being part of each other. We look to each other for strength and for protection uh, and for encouragement. Uh, we look to each other to help overcome trials of life. We're a community. Sometimes communities can be very exclusive. Sometimes they can be very inclusive. Uh, you cannot be a part of the Lipscomb alumni if you didn't graduate from Lipscomb. <laughs> That's a prerequisite. It's exclusive. Uh, now you can still root for them, uh, but to be part of the alumni, well, you had to go to school there. Uh, some communities are very exclusive, you know, Ritzy's uh, country clubs, <laughs> and you have to be a member, you have to pay, just, you know. Some other communities are very inclusive. They reach out always looking to pull others within their group. In a very real sense, the church is kind of both. There are some very real membership requirements, but yet there is always the, the desire to reach out and help others know the Lord and be part of this community, part of this family that worships God together. There can, yes, be times when they clash a little, but with understanding, with proper guidance from the Lord, then uh, they don't clash. The church is exclusive in that only those that God places in the church are there. It's exclusive in that God put some restrictions on those who are members. He has certain expectations of those of us who are part of the family. A, a lifestyle, Jesus would use the words, take up your cross and follow me. So there's some fairly exclusive restrictions there. But it's in, uh, inclusive and that God wants everybody to come and know him. God wants everybody to come to repentance. God hopes that every person will be saved and brought into the family that worships him. He doesn't want to exclude anyone. In fact, his grace uh, reaches all. And by his grace, he qualifies anyone or can qualify anyone to be part of that exclusive group. Because his grace is greater than our sin. His grace can reach wherever we are. It's inclusive in that any person, regardless of their background, their race, their ethnicity, their financial means, their educational uh, level, anybody can be part of this community of God, the, the family of God, or the church. Now, back in January and February, I talked some about the community of God, uh, about the church, and, and, and about us having certain characteristics as God's community. Uh, it's a community of believers. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We, we talked about how that uh, the community of believers, or the church, uh, is 
the group that God wants us to worship Him. Oh, and this congregation is a gathering of people. It is a community that praises God. We sing out. We worship the Lord together. We give praise to His name. We indeed are a community of worshipers. We talked also one Sunday about us being a community of servants. Now that we must serve the Lord. And how we seek to serve the Lord. In this community and around the world, we seek to do His will. To be ministers for the Lord in this community and elsewhere. We are a community of servants. Today I want us to backtrack a little bit and I want us to talk about or think about what forms our community. What pulls up, what makes us a community? Uh, and if the church is the body of the saved, then what is it that saves us? Or how is it that we are saved? The church is the body of the saved. And part of that understanding we reach or we, we see as we're reading in Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. On that Pentecost, shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 3,000 people received the word. It means they believed what Peter was saying. They didn't reject the word that Peter had. They, they received it. They believed. And they were baptized. And together they devoted themselves to what the apostles were teaching. They sought to learn the gospel of Jesus. They sought to learn about the kingdom of God. So this community that was formed immediately with all of those 3,000 people that joined with the apostles and the other believers there, they were devoted to knowing what the church is all about. This community that they pulled together wanted to learn God's will. And they shared with each other. They began helping each other. They shared in their life as well as their worship of God. In fact, they were worshiping regularly at the temple and in their homes, wherever they had the possibility. They were bound together in prayer. See, immediately there is a community here that was very supportive of one another, that built each other, and it was a growing 
community. God was adding to their number those that God saved. So the church here in Jerusalem is composed of those persons that God had saved. So here's a fundamental truth. We are saved by God. Salvation is God's work, not our work. That's important for us to understand. You see, in the past, there had been a legal system where the dis- those within the, uh, in the, the law, those within Judaism, were always struggling to save themselves, to merit a relationship with God. Salvation is God's work, not ours. Paul would write to Titus in chapter 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we're not saved because of works we have done. Even though we are commanded to work and minister, we're commanded to be active and involved in ministry and service to God, but we're not saved by our own righteousness by our own acts of righteousness. We're not saved because we are so good. Even though God expects us to be righteous, He expects us to stay out of sin. He will be very disappointed if we live our lives in immoralities, our impurities, our improfanities. What we are saved by, however, is his mercy, his regeneration, his making us new. His grace is poured out on us through Jesus Christ. So we're justified by his grace, and we are given this hope of eternal life because of what he has done, because Jesus lives we believing in him that we have that same hope. You see, the power of the gospel, or rather the power of salvation, is the gospel. What saves us is Jesus. His, his atoning grace from the cross. The Jews had had that legal system offering sacrifices to atone for their sins. And while that might have had some effect, as soon as the sacrifice was ended and there was new sin, there was the need for additional sacrifice. It was a never-ending process. That redemption changes, or changed, past tense, in Christ. The power of salvation is not in all those so many more sacrifices, 
or for that matter, in our obedience, the power of salvation is in the gospel, in Jesus. Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also to the Greek. So Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, that ultimate or complete sacrifice. He paid the ultimate price for the sins of all humanity for all time. Now the disobedient will never please God. God does not want disobedience. Uh, God does not want us to live in disobedience. And it's foolish to think that somehow God will overlook our disobedience or our rejection of his will to ignore his justice or uh, if we do so, he will see us as unfaithful. It's foolish sometimes or also to think that somehow our obedience will somehow supersede the righteousness of God. The righteousness of the Jews in the past was never good enough to save them. And our righteousness will never be good enough to save us. We'll always need the grace of Jesus. So now on Pentecost, the people gathered that day to hear what Peter was saying. Well, they'd gone to the temple because it was the uh, Pentecost. They'd gone to worship God. They'd gone to offer sacrifices. Because of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, Peter and the others were speaking in different languages. The crowd gathered, and Peter preaches to them. And as he teaches, he shows them that Jesus is the Christ, and that when they took him to the cross, they had rebelled against God. They had, in essence, killed the Messiah. He celebrates in the fact that Jesus did not stay in the tomb, but was raised from the dead, and thereby proven to be the Son of God, and proven that all of his, his claims were, in fact, true. That brings us up to verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. It is faith in Jesus that brought those that were listening to Peter that day to the conclusion that they needed some help, that right now they were disobedient to God, lost. And so Peter gave them the command that has been echoed millions of times through the centuries. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of or for the forgiveness of sins. 
Peter even went so far in verse 40 as saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, he was not meaning that somehow what they were doing had the power to earn salvation. What he was telling them is, choose today. You've got the power to decide whether or not you're going to be a Christian or not. You've got the power to decide whether or not you're going to obey the Lord or not. Choose Jesus. Save yourselves today. Make that decision today to be a Christian. Make that decision today to obey the Lord. Accept the grace that's offered. Don't reject Christ. Don't reject the grace that's offered through the Spirit. Become an heir to the hope of eternal life by following Jesus. So 3,000 or so that day made that choice. They chose to save themselves or they made the decision to step out of Moses into Christ. As these people obeyed the Lord, God added them to the community of the apostles or to the community of Christ, to the church. The church then is that community composed of those persons that God has saved. We make up the church. Uh, We make up the body, the family of God, the body of Christ. When Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he reminds them that they are the church, the body of Jesus. They are in Christ. Ephesians 1, verse 22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Somehow the world today has the idea that salvation is independent of the church. Now, it is true that the church does not save, just like it's true that we don't save ourselves. Jesus saves. But the church is the saved. And so if we're saved, we're in the church. God has made of those he has saved The community of the saved are the church, the body of Christ. Each person that God saves, he puts in the church. Sometimes we don't appreciate that. Sometimes, even though God has given us that membership, we aren't very good members and we wander around the world and never come to the group meetings We're saved, we're in the church, because God put us there. Maybe some of these who do not appreciate the, or who resist participation in the church do so because they don't want the responsibilities of community. And membership has privileges, but also membership has responsibilities. They, well, I don't want to have to and whatever might be on their list. Be there, give, 
serve, work, sing. It could be that they're afraid of the standards of membership. That means I'll have to be righteous. That means I'll have to clean up my language. And so we don't participate because we don't want some of the lifestyle standards that God expects from those he saves. It's not the expectations of the church per se, it's the expectations of God. On Judgment Day, those of us that resist participation because we don't want those responsibilities, we're going to have to talk to God about that. Some keep their distance because as they look out at the community of God, they see some in the community that, well, I'm better than that person is. And so they think that the church, this community doesn't have anything to offer. But again, in reality, it's God who puts us here. Now, on Judgment Day, that person that's been the bad example is going to have to talk to God about that. But that will not also excuse us from having to talk to God about why we didn't want to be part. Why we didn't appreciate the position in Christ that he had given us. A place in the body that he had given us. Saying out of the church isn't the answer. Drowning in the middle of the ocean isn't the answer just because we don't like the guy in the lifeboat. God places the saved in the church. Don't resist the Lord. Don't refuse the will of God. Don't refuse cooperation with other saints that might supply strength or encouragement Don't refuse the spiritual plan that God has had from the ages. Make the choice to be part of God's church, community of faith. Peter said, choose you this day. Uh, Choose to be saved. Uh, Saved from this crooked generation. And because of his teaching that day, some 3,000 people were baptized added to the church by God, becoming part of that fellowship of believers, that fellowship of worshipers, that fellowship of servants. Don't be disobedient to the Lord and reject his offer of grace. Some reject that thinking, well, baptism seems like such an odd or archaic thing or so legalistic. Ever heard of the expression cutting off your nose to spite your face? We don't need to argue, we just need to obey. Don't resist because you don't want the responsibilities. Those responsibilities can really add to your life, to the purpose of your life, to the joy of the fellowship. Don't turn your back to the group that Jesus has designated for fellowship, uh, for service, for praise, the group that Jesus died for. 
when Philip is talking to the Ethiopian on that road, uh, the Ethiopian asks him, well, can I be baptized? Can I be a disciple? Philip said, well, you can if you believe. Uh, the Ethiopian then confessed, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's son. Peter, when he was teaching on Pentecost, told those that had been convicted by the word who are now believing, repent, be baptized. Those that received that word were baptized that day. 3,000 believing and now repentant people were baptized in the Christ. There's evidence of dozens, if not hundreds, of small baptistries all around the Temple Mount. 3,000 people being baptized that day in Jerusalem was simple. It was an ordinary thing because the Jews, before they went into the Temple Mount, would do that ceremonial washing. Those baptistries are still there today as an evidence that God's Word is true. What about you? Have you believed that Jesus is the Christ? I really believe that you all do because you're here today. But remember, even the demons believe they're just not obedient. They're not responsive. Are you willing to say so? Are you willing to say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ? You know, 2,000 years ago, that could sometimes mean one's own death because of the opposition to Christ. And in other parts of the world today, that's the case. If you confess your faith in Jesus, it can mean your, your own death. I pray that that never happens here, but I pray that all of us would be willing to give up our life for the one who gave his life for us. Have you confessed Jesus? Have you been buried with him so that you might be reborn with him? taking on his death and his resurrection so that like he was buried and raised in newness of life, you too can be buried and raised in newness of life. Take the grace of Jesus. Take the grace of the Lord. Let's be standing. If you're not yet obedient to the Lord during the invitation this morning, everything is ready. Water, clothing, towels. You can be buried with Christ for the remission of your sins. Won't you come while we praise God in song?